Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer No Violet Bulawayo. Born and raised in Zimbabwe, Bulawayo earned her MFA at Cornell University, where she was the recipient of the Truman Capote Fellowship. In 2011, she won the biggest literary prize in Africa, the Kane Prize for African Writing, and she is currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her debut novel, We Need New Names, a book People Magazine calls original, witty, and devastating. Welcome to Between the Covers, No Violet Bulawayo. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Your novel takes place in Zimbabwe during the lost decade. Could you orient our, our listeners to some of the things that were going on during the lost decade that inform We Need New Names? We look at the lost decade as a time when things sort of fell apart in Zimbabwe um, due to failure of leadership. That translated in, for me, as somebody who was born right at the beginning of Zimbabwean independence, somebody who had a golden childhood, it just changed the country I knew. We are talking of things like the highest inflation in the world, to people dealing with power cuts every day, to election violence, um, to thousands and thousands of people leaving the country in droves, understandably um, looking for greener pastures. So that is that is the time. And, you know, I'd say the worst of it was around the 2008 um, elections where violence kind of intensified as the government tried to cling to power. Um, you know, so that's, that's where I wrote, that's the space that informed uh, We Need New Names. What really makes the novel unique in my mind and also makes it congeal is the, the choice that you made to tell it from the perspective of children. Mm -hmm. And even though we're, you've described these really grim political uh, situation, the, the feeling of reading the book is very buoyant and the kids feel very full of, of hope and have big dreams, in, even, even though the reader knows that the background uh, scenario isn't necessarily going to provide them. Can you talk a little bit about that choice to juxtapose the, the viewpoint of the children with uh, this political situation? Um, I'm always interested in, in, in children, firstly because they are, you know, they are any society's most vulnerable victims. They are also voiceless. You know, they never get to have a say where the big issues of the day are concerned. So I just wanted to write a, a book that gave the children the spotlight. But beyond that, I think children are amazing, amazing survivors. They, I think they are more equipped than adults to cope with any situation. Something happens in 10 minutes, the child is forgotten and is laughing. You know, I wanted to capture that, uh, that, that spirit of strength and resilience. You know, and of course, yeah, I was working from a politically charged space, and I thought having children, uh, a child protagonist, and children character, child characters gave me the distance. You know, not to impose too much of my politics on the, on the project, and I hope it it did work. I I think it did, and and it also allowed a, an opportunity to put some humor into the book. Oh yes, I mean humor is is always important. I was just. T telling a friend how, you know, it's, it's just part of where I come from. No matter what the people are going through, somehow they remember to, to laugh. And I wanted that to, 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 to carry in the book. Well, let's talk about the protagonist, Darling. Um, she has such a unique voice. Can, can you tell us a little bit about 
who Darling is and, and what her family situation is? Um, Darling is a 10-year-old girl, and when we first meet her, she's, uh, she and her family and friends have just moved to this shanty town um, called Paradise after they lose their homes to a government operation, after the government bulldozes their their homes. And really this was inspired by what happened around 2005 in Zim. I remember, you know, it was, I mean, I've, I've been living here for like 13 years and social media and the internet is part of my everyday life. So I woke up one day and there was this heartbreaking image of, of this kid who was sitting on his bulldozed home. And, uh, you know, images started pouring in and thankfully on the ground, the, the camera was taking, the you know, digital cameras and people were posting. So I got interested in the story of these uh, children. And of course, I chose to, to, to develop Darling, or rather she imposed herself on the project that I was working on. And uh, interestingly, I mean, I was writing this when I was in my late 20s, um, trying to find a connection to a 10-year-old kid in Zim while I'm outside presented a, an interesting challenge. So I, I found myself going back to my own childhood, even though myself and Darling had two very different childhoods. I grew up in a golden Zimbabwe. But I still went back to my childhood, to my childhood friends for the for the voice, for that, uh, yeah, for what it felt like to be 10 years old. It was really interesting how Darling's voice feels so self-possessed. She, mm-hmm. she feels like she has a lot of strength and that she doesn't rely on anything external. She's skeptical of prayer. She's skeptical oh, yeah. of religion. And, and, and also at the NGOs that are coming with their aid, it, it's, it's interesting as a non-African to read the book and have you flip the scenario you know, where somebody might assume from a distance that these are victims. Here they're very much portrayed as people who are empowered in, in, a, in a strange way in a circumstance that is difficult. Oh yeah, I'm empowered and very much trying to deal with their circumstances as best as they can, um, which I think also speaks to to the resilience on the ground. I, I just went back home for the first time in 13 years and uh, of course it was not the Zimbabwe I knew, but what struck me is how people just adapted and went on with the everyday, you know, coming from outside and having, you know, assessed the country through through the media, through stories. I mean, I speak to my family on it, you know, quite often and with Skype and email and internet, communication is easier. But just being there and seeing the strength and courage, it was it was quite amazing. And I, I, I wanted to celebrate that because it's often easy to dismiss people in a space like this. But the reality is that people do not, quit living. Somehow they, they, they keep going. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with debut novelist No Violet Bulawayo about her book, We Need New Names. No Violet, uh, do you have a section that maybe you could uh, expose our listeners to Darling's voice? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So half of the novel is set in Zimbabwe, um, and then half is set in the U.S. after Darling is able to, to move there to live with her aunt Fostalina. This section I'm going to read, she's just um, hanging out with her aunt one afternoon. I'm on my third Capri Sun now, and my stomach is so full of guava and liquid it could burst. I just ate the last of the guavas, and already I have this sadness, thinking about the length of time 
maybe years, before I will test guava again. Unfortunately, is busy trying to order her push-up bra on the phone, and you can hear that she and whoever she is speaking to are having issues. The problem with English is this. You usually can't open your mouth and it comes out just like that. First, you have to think what you want to say. Then you have to find the words. Then you have to carefully arrange those words in your head. Then you have to say the words quietly to yourself to make sure you got them okay. And finally, the last step, which is to say the words out loud and have them sound just right. But then because you have to do all this, when you get to the final step, something strange has happened to you and you speak the way a drunk walks. And because you are speaking like falling, it's as if you are an idiot, when the truth is that it's the language and the whole process that's messed up. And then the problem with those who speak only English is this. They don't know how to listen. They are busy looking at your falling instead of paying attention to what you are saying. I have decided the best way to deal with it all is to sound American, and the TV has told me just how to do it. It's pretty easy. All you have to do is watch Dora the Explorer, The Simpsons, SpongeBob, Scooby-Doo, and then you move on to That's So Raven, Glee, Friends, Golden Girls, and so on, just listening and imitating the accents. If you do it well, then before you know it, nobody will ask you to repeat what you said. I also have my list of American words that I keep under the tongue like talismans, ready to use. Pretty good, for real, awesome, totally, skinny, dude, freaking, bizarre, messed up, tripping, allowance, clearance, douchebag, you are welcome, acting up, yikes. The TV has also told me that if I'm talking to someone, I have to look him in the eye, even if it is an adult, even if it's rude. It makes sense to me that Juno Diaz, as editor of the Boston Review, would have recognized your work when he published your first short story, I oh, believe. Yeah. I see a real resonance between the the enterprise of what you both do, and I'm curious if you do as well, the, uh, exploring this idea of uh, living in two places at once, essentially being haunted by the place they're, they're not in. And... Um, also, just a reinvention of the, the syntax of English to make it really reflect a different reality. Can, can you talk about wh- any connection you might feel with him? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, especially his uh, Facebook drown, um, you are dealing with somebody who has left their homeland and is trying to negotiate an existence in the, in the U.S. You know, this idea of living or negotiating two different selves. And I remember reading the book. I mean, I grew up in Zimbabwe, and what was mostly available was, you know, African literature and British literature. So we never really encountered writers on the margin. And I remember moving to the U.S. and being exposed to the amazing, many amazing diverse writers, uh, Juno Diaz, Sandra Cisneros, really taught me a lot in terms of you know, what it meant to be an immigrant, an immigrant writer and embracing it sort of uh, it sort of gave me courage as a young writer. And uh, 
there are there there are numerous connections and as you read more and wider you see the, those things kind of resonate in in in, in immigrant um in immigrant literature well you mentioned that we need new names is is split into two parts essentially the first being in zimbabwe and the second when darling goes to america was one part easier for you to write and find the voice in than the other i i would imagine that it would really draw on a very different part of yourself each one Oh yes, I mean yeah, it really demanded a different part, but in terms of being easy, um I'd say I had more fun writing the Zimbabwean section because I am Zimbabwean, I grew up there, I know it quite intimately and my memories of the space despite the the, the hard background that I was writing against were really beautiful and uh I was able to kind of celebrate things even as I was dealing with tough uh, material and then the voice you know I'm intimately tied to the to the voice in that first section and then the american section darling's voice shifts interesting love head readers um talking about the writing kind of you know becoming tried weakening in the second section but the thing is that they expect darling to still sound very vibrant and Yes, and as she does in the first section. But the th- what I was trying to go there that I think people sometimes miss is that something happens to yourself when you leave your homeland behind. It's like, and that's something that I identify with personally. Um, I spent my first year in college in silence, for example. I couldn't speak in class. I only spoke at home because I had people speaking my language, my sister, my aunt. Um that shift of, of of identity trying to deal with this new space when identity is something that's very much tied to geographic space trying to negotiate that so there's there's a shift darling darling undergoes a shift um was it hard to write it it wasn't necessarily hard to write but the experience of it i think um both on a personal level you know was was kind of was kind of challenging and i was trying to 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 capture that struggle at home she's always you know at the center of things she's always being part of the action in america we mostly see her looking at things and observing and commenting which i think is is what people can identify with you know because you can't really own this land and it doesn't own you and it sort of pushes you away because you don't always have the cultural currency to exist and be an intimate part of it. Well, in the section you just read about uh darling she received some guavas oh, from yes. home in the mail and and guavas are very central to her existence when she's living in Zimbabwe and and I feel like that was a really great section to choose to read because uh what's interesting about this dual reality between America and Zimbabwe in the book is in Zimbabwe she's she's really focused on eating guavas she's also going hungry but we have this experience of her life being very full and it's strange how we get to america and she doesn't get the guavas she doesn't get the flavor of her homeland and we really even though she's surrounded by an, an enormous amount of uh, material wealth the cultural poverty seems to really be when you're reading the america section it feels like we really experience cultural poverty and i thought you did that really well the language does change it becomes less um vibrant yeah. uh and but i also felt like it reflected a, a poor 
ex spiritual, cultural experience oh, yes. for the character. Oh, yes, yes, it, it definitely does, I think, because I think language is, that's something that arises from, from where you are, from what you are doing, and from the self that you are. And, uh, you know, in this part, in this section I just read, for example, she's just on the couch looking at Anfostalina, and I don't think we have uh, encountered her in that, in, in such a situation uh, back home. And Guavas, yes, I mean, I... Uh, I remember coming here and noticing that in as much as there were so many trees around the neighborhoods, there were not fruit trees, you know, and as an 18-year-old, I found that quite weird. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. So in Zimbabwe, there's a neighborhood called Budapest in this book that is a wealthier neighborhood, and in, and it's inhabited also by some wealthier white colonist families and they go there to steal the guavas it also feels like a precursor to her experience in america in a sense too because when they go there everything feels gated and and there's less sounds and people seem to be less interactive and friendly did you see a, a resonance between budapest and and the foreshadowing of her going to the united states you know i always feel like budapest can happen anywhere that idea of spaces being together but kind of separate um, in the same way. In America, you know, I think the the most intimate example is Elliot's house, this other fancy neighborhood where she goes not to steal but to kind of clean. So the dynamics of why she goes there have changed a little bit, but it's also there are similarities in in the t in the sense that she kind of still wants something there. She can't steal, but she has to to pay for it. In other words, she has to provide uh, to provide labor. So the thing is, of course, she she leaves Zimbabwe. She escapes Zimbabwe, um, escaping courts to a place to a space where some of the dynamics still still happen. You know, um, and there, I guess, I was trying to to look at what America means and the American dream and really how how real, how tangible it is. Mm -hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to No Violet Bulawayo about her debut novel, We Need New Names. No Violet, uh, tell us what the title means to you. Um, we Need New Names just speaks to how, as, as, as a people, as, I mean, it, it came from a very specific period in, in, in my country's history, how we need new ways of imagining things, of seeing ourselves, of, of, of doing, you know, of doing things from government to leadership to thinking about the world around us. And I see it as a title that transcends borders because you have themes like, you know, immigration, um, you have the NGOs, so it's a title that I, that hopefully will inspire people to, to think about our identities, where we are going, and what we can do moving forward. And there's also this really interesting use of names, like the name Paradise for a shanty town, and then her hearing Detroit, Michigan is destroyed, Michigan, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like you do a really good job of undermining this sense of of one of these countries working better than the other one. Mm -hmm. It seems like both feel destroyed in a certain oh, way yes. that's oh, different. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the characters have really interesting names, like uh, some of the kids' names, God Knows, Bastard, Cheapo. Are, is that, is that um, a common 
uh, phenomenon in Zimbabwe? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is I grew up around names like God knows. Um, the, the, the sister that I come after, my oldest sister, her name Sibo Nkosi. Um, if you translate it into English, it means we praise God. So I guess our parents give us pr- uh, names that, that say something. You know, it's 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 normal. They sound normal in our native languages, of course. But then some of these are translated into English. That's how you get names like uh, God knows. But they are perfectly ordinary. Um, we laugh about this on with with Facebook friends. You know, um, I think somebody just wrote about the the names on in We Need New Names and posted the article on the Zimbabwean website. But interestingly, people just responded with list of interesting names they 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 know so it's it's, it's something that really comes from the the cultural space and, and your name is a chosen name a pen name did what is the meaning behind no violet bulawayo for you um violet is actually my mother's name um she she passed away when i was 18 months and i grew up not quite having a good sense of her because she was really never spoken about so in the end all before it means with. So it was just on a personal level. It was my way of kind of honoring her memory. And then Bulawayo is the city of my people. That's where I grew up. And I guess being out of the country for so many years and not being able to go back made me nostalgic. It made me want to connect to my homeland. So I I, I did adopt the name. How is um, the book being received in Zimbabwe? Um, It's not quite I, I think it comes out in August so people haven't read it yet um that said you know I, I've posted snippets on on Facebook and published articles online and the reception has really been quite encouraging I did meet some Zimbabweans yesterday who came to my reading they've read the book and uh you know they it's, it's quite humbling to see people connect with what you've done because they're able to see themselves in the book, not just Zimbabweans. Um, so it's, it's, it's been quite encouraging. And are there certain writers that you, you look to as influences when you were writing We Need, we need New Names? Um, I'm always saying that how I come from a culture of origin and how before I acknowledge writers, it's, it's always important for me to, to acknowledge that part of my upbringing, you know, storytelling, the, the spoken word, and that's what I tra- kind of tried to do here so that it doesn't... It's written, of course, but it was important for me to make it sound like a told story. Um, I was brought up by storytellers. And that that never leaves me when I'm working. But, of course, there are writers that I look up to, um, Tony Morrison, Juno Diaz, Jumpa Lahiri, um, Edward P. Jones, Edwish Dantika, Kolo McKen. I, I just love beautiful writing. I love writers who handle subjects that matter. I love writers who make me think about the state of our world. And are there any Zimbabwean writers that you would think of that uh, people who are interested in reading more from Zimbabwe should check out? Oh, yes. Uh, There's Yvonne Vera, um, Petina Gapa, Novio Chuma, who's part of the younger generation, uh, Shima Chinochka, Chenjerai Hove, just to name a few. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and before we finish today, uh, I just wanted to mention the or hear your thoughts about the role of girls and, and women in, in We Need New Names. It feels like they are the central characters, essentially the ones that have the most moral authority in the book. 
both in Zimbabwe and in Ameri- in the Zimbabwean family in America, mm-hmm. um, they feel like the ones that have the most integrity. Do you do you mm-hmm. feel like you're you're writing with feminist motives in mind? <laughs> Um, I I wouldn't call it feminist motives. I mean, the the thing is that I it's almost not it's almost impossible to not be a feminist. I mean, you know, with being who I am, being where I come from, and uh, what's interesting is that uh, at the time when things were falling apart, just talking to friends and family. Just looking at how much weight women carried, you know, it's it's it's, it's just amazing. The things that they went through. I think it's a known fact when that when things go wrong, women kind of suffer more than men because of their gender. And uh, of course, I'm a woman myself, and maybe part of of of, of that and growing up around women and seeing just how much they have to deal with subconsciously made me make the book the way it, it, it was. And it's true that Darling's father is absent from for much of the book and, until he's in need. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it, he is. I mean, that's not to undermine uh, the role of men in Zimbabwe in, in, in any society, but the reality is that women are really the cornerstones of the womb. When children get up, they, the first thing they do is, Mommy, what are we eating today? Um, and it's practical for men to sort of leave and, and find works. If you are looking at who left, really, in terms of houses with families, men were leaving, but also women were kind of, of, of living. I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, we went to high school together, and uh, he's, uh, he's doing great work now. He's, in, he's, you know, he's an activist. But he was... He just told a story of how he was working with these women in the fields of Botswana. Um, you know, they would go and work and come back with food. That was at the time when there was no food in the stores in Zimbabwe. And how it, at some point, um, I don't know what happened. They were paid. I mean, they, they were paid as a group. But there arose a scenario where the, 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 the guy needed to be paid through sexual favors before he paid the whole group. And they had to meet. And the two... There were a couple of women in the group. And the older one and the younger one talked, and the younger one ended up being the one who had to grant the sexual favors before the whole whole group was paid. And he was telling me how, as a man, that incident woke him up to to his privilege and to what women just had to endure. You know, I'm just giving an example of uh, the kind of things that was happening, and that can happen in this space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, Violet, are you working on anything now that you could share a little bit for your, your fans? I, uh, I'm trying to recover from writing We Need New Names, but I'm also working on an AIDS, a collection of AIDS stories. Um, AIDS is a, you know, we, we have some of the highest rates in the region, and it's still something that's not, I'm, I'm concerned, I guess, about how it still prevails. That it's not quite getting better and how it's something that's not quite spoken about in meaningful ways. And being that I, I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a you know, as a catalyst for dialogue and 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 new forms of of thinking, I I quite feel the responsibility to sort of play my part through, you know, through a collection. So we'll see how that goes. I, I really like how you you brought AIDS into this novel in a way that felt very. 
effective. And, and I really look forward to your next collection. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for being on Between the Covers. My pleasure. We were talking today with debut novelist No Violet Bulawayo about her debut novel, We Need New Names. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>